Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Guria. I'm joined today by my co-host of uh, many episodes now, Louis Abood. Louis, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Today I'm joined by Joey Krug, the inventor of Augur, co-chief investment officer of Pantera, and advisor to Wire. Uh, full disclosure, Pantera Capital are investors in Wire Payments Incorporated. Joey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're super excited to have you here, mostly because we can cover a lot of ground. Uh, we're going to talk about prediction markets today. We're going to talk a lot about your investment thesis, what you do at Pantera day to day, and the different kind of companies you oversee and advise. I'm also really excited to talk to you because you've just been around in the space for a very, very long time. So you have, uh, you know, you have boots on the ground experience of uh, what the space even was like in 2015, even earlier than that, right? I know I certainly wasn't active in the space then. Uh, I know Louis was probably trading Bitcoin back then, but maybe not so active in the Ethereum smart contract development space. So, anyways, Joey, let's let's wind it all the way back. If you can tell the audience a little bit about how you stumbled onto crypto uh, and more specifically Ethereum. Yeah, so the way, the way I came across uh, Bitcoin originally was in 2011, in maybe late March, early April, I used to always go to this forum every single day called overclock.net. And I read about basically overclocking your CPU and GPU. Uh, it's like a hobby. And there's this post on the forum uh, that was entitled, Earn Free Money with Your GPU. And the first time I saw it, I was like, well, this is BS. And then for about five or six weeks, it was the number one post on the forum for five or six weeks straight. So I finally decided to click on it because I was like, you know, these guys aren't idiots. Uh, they're overclocking their their computers. There might be something here. And so I clicked on it and it was about Bitcoin mining. And that's kind of how I, you know, fell down the rabbit hole in, in crypto. Yeah. And after you discovered the mining opportunities, how did you stumble upon Ethereum? And I suspect this was a few months or a few years even after. Yeah. So Ethereum, I came across in I would say the fall of 2014, I've been trying to kind of figure out a way to create a prediction market on top of Bitcoin and ended up talking to Vitalik uh, via Skype. And he basically suggested, hey, maybe you should try out even building a build on Bitcoin on Ethereum. It's, it's sort of kind of made for that kind of thing that you're trying to do. And I sort of brushed it off for a few weeks and then eventually uh, fed up with the experience of building on top of Bitcoin, basically modifying Bitcoin Core. Uh, which was in C++, so it was kind of a, a pain to deal with. I uh, eventually tried to write a smart contract on Ethereum to build what I built. And what had taken me six weeks on top of Bitcoin, I was able to do in one day uh, via smart contracts. And so that was when basically it kind of decided that it was going to be on top of Ethereum instead. And you've dedicated all your efforts on Ethereum really since, right? Yep. Okay. And at the time... Were there other projects like yourself that were that you know Vitalik was trying to court to come onto Ethereum? There, there weren't really that many people. You know, the only other thing I can really remember around that time uh, was a project called E Dollar by this pseudonymous person uh, named Rune uh, <laughs> that was on Reddit, and you know that of course eventually became uh, MakerDAO. I see. So walk me through like the early days of Augur and the inception of Augur. Um, how did you, from being sold to uh, by Vitalik to pivot the project to building on top of Ethereum, how did you eventually formulate other team members? How did you encourage people to join you in this effort to bring a predictions market to life on smart contracts? Yeah. So for Augur, the, 
it kind of helps to go back to the core value proposition, which is uh, the main concept behind Augur is if you take Bitcoin, it's sending payments from point A to point B. Then if you build on top of that, you take Ethereum. Ethereum is basically sending conditional payments from point A to point B. And so if you look at Augur, it's basically a framework for how do you do bets on top of Ethereum in a way that's you know no limit, where you can send them from point A to point B anywhere in the world, uh, very low fees. And so that was kind of the core concept. And so building a team around that, it was trying to find people who were excited about this, people who maybe bet on prediction markets or bet on sporting events or or whatever. And for some reason, you know, had some problem with it, whether it was they were getting cut off because the limits were too high. Another issue is that if you're an actual winner, you're winning your bets, uh, your limits, again, get decreased farther and farther because bookies don't want you to basically win. Uh, they want you to lose. And so it's finding people who kind of sympathize with that sort of viewpoint and who are pretty much all software developers. That was the initial team that we built. And at the time, this concept of of a project building on top of Ethereum was very, very novel, obviously. Did you try to like raise venture capital and make a company out of this? Or was this always something that you wanted hobbyists just involved in and in their free time? Yeah, I think we only ever talked to one uh, VC. It was it was Tim Draper. And I think we we pitched him. But after that, a couple of months after that, we realized that in order to solve uh, this problem called the Oracle problem, we basically needed a, a separate token. So at that point, uh, we didn't proceed with pitching any other VCs. Uh, we instead did one of the first crowd sales or ICOs on top of Ethereum. And were ICOs uh, a novel concept at the time? Like you were the first project to do that or, or were other people thinking about fundraising in that manner? So there were, there were a couple of people who'd done them before, uh, like MasterCoin, Ethereum itself, but nobody had done one uh, for anything that wasn't a layer one blockchain and nobody had done one on top of Ethereum. So we were the first people to, to do one on top of Ethereum. The sort of smart contracts uh, that we wrote for that, you know, they processed, you know, uh, a, a huge amount of ether uh, shortly after Ethereum launched in August of 2015. Okay, and when you were concocting this ICO and and thinking about how to fundraise from investors online, how did you design the token so that there was a clear value proposition for investors, or did it not even really matter at that time because the people perhaps investing in this just just didn't really uh, care. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we really thought about it from like that standpoint. Really, what we thought about is how do we design an economic system that solves this tech problem that we face, which is how do you get real world data into the blockchain in a, in a secure way? And how do we make that, you know, incentive compatible? And it just so happens that if you, if you design a system like that in practice, the way the incentives end up working out is that if you, you know, own this token reputation and you report on markets and you stake it on the markets, you get rewarded with fees. That's sort of the the incentive model. But we didn't approach it from the perspective of how do we get people to buy the asset, but more from the perspective of how do we design an asset that solves this problem that we face. I see. And so the initial participants in the ICO, were they, uh, what was like the average profile for, for someone that participated? Yeah, I think it was, you know, just somebody who was interested in Ethereum. Um, most of them were familiar with Ethereum. They were interested in prediction markets. And, you know, they wanted to see this thing built. Since it was one of the first ones, you know, there wasn't really any kind of idea that you didn't really have any idea whether it actually would get built or, you know, whether the thing would work at all. The, the whole kind of concept was just you were funding this thing, you would get some rep tokens in exchange for it. And that was basically it. You know, I think um, there's a wide group of people who participated, about 3,500 
Uh, so no oh, wow. one, no one person, you know, bought a huge amount in it. And so how's your view on the kind of the economics and incentives in Augur? How has that sort of evolved over time? I know there are some changes coming with, with V2. You know, what have been the, the revelations since the, the applications launched? Yeah. So I think when we initially started Augur, the idea was everyone would report on every event. And so as a reporter, you'd come in, you'd log in once a month or something, you'd report on all these events and, and that was that. You pretty quickly realized that's not going to scale. And so we switched from a reporting model to a dispute-based model. So the idea is you show up and somebody, maybe it's the person who creates the market on what you're betting on, say it's like a political event, and say it's on whether Trump will win the election in 2020. That person might report and say he won. And then if he did win, it just kind of sits there and then the market resolves. Uh, if he didn't, somebody might go and dispute it. So we switched to the dispute-based model early on before even V1 launched. And then uh, so that was the main shift between like when we did the crowd sale when V1 launched. After V1, you know, a few main things we noticed are we made the dispute periods way too long. So markets were taking weeks to resolve in V1. In V2, the first dispute period is 24 hours. And then after that, people can kind of immediately dispute back and forth up to 12 of these dispute rounds. So in practice, markets in V2 should really resolve within about a week or so. And I would say on average, they should resolve, you know, 24 to 36 hours. So that's a huge change. The other big change that we realized is people sometimes make markets that are what we call invalid. They're markets where it's not possible to, you know, accurately resolve them. So it might be, what is the Bitcoin dominance index? Or what is the percent of Bitcoin dominance on Friday at midnight? And then the site that you're visiting to check it goes down mm -hmm. or the site changes the results multiple times after, after Friday at midnight for the same value. So like they say, at Friday at midnight, when you check it the first time, they say it's 55%. The next day you check it, it was 56%. And there's no clear reason why it changed. That's like one example of something that something close to that actually has happened. And so um, in V2, what we allow is people to basically bet on whether a market is going to be invalid or not. And so if you see a market where like somebody knows, oh, that market has a, a bad resolution source, like that source is not accurate. It's had problems before. They can speculate on that market being invalid. Um, and you can also do it to catch things that were poorly worded in the description. Yeah. And I guess so, uh, you know, so far, I guess you could characterize um, the progress of Augur as basically successfully testing the concept of a decentralized prediction market, dealing with some of the edge cases that you're referring to. Because I know that had a, a lot of dispute resolution around the midterm election markets, for example. That would be, you know, probably the prime example of a poorly worded, uh, poorly worded market. And uh, I think we agree, because I know you've talked about it before, that one of the biggest problems with V1 is the the lack of die-based markets, because if it's all ETH-based, then any organ market basically turns into a bet on the on the price of ETH. Um, what, what are the other kind of incremental improvements besides the economic stuff that you've talked about that are being added to V2 that you think will really move the, the needle in terms of usability? Yeah, like bring us to the current state of where Augur's at right now. Yeah, so I think for... For V2, because you talk about the current state, you know, for V1, the last big change we did was back in June. Ever, ever since then, it's been work on V2. The last big change we did in V1 was adding some default um, sorts and filters and things to make it so invalid markets are disincentivized and, and uh, helping people not create them. And so if you look at V1 markets prior to June, about 14%, which is really high, markets were invalid. After June, it's only 3%. And that's before all these V2 changes to help fix that. And was that primarily because of Bad data or bad questions, bad wording? Um, mostly bad wording, yeah. so, sometimes bad data, but 
the bad data part is is more easy to fix because mm-hmm. you can add things like redundant sources and and add a bunch of clarity around it. Mostly it's poor wording. And so that that's kind of one big change. And then other things for V2. So in addition to DAI, which I think is huge because if people are betting in an asset that's not the dollar, even if you're right, you can lose money. And so it doesn't make economic sense to use Augur. So one thing that most people don't know is for, you know, I'd say top five events to bet on at any given point in time, Augur right now usually has the best odds and in some cases, the best liquidity in the world. Um, Guesser is actually providing a lot of that. The downside is, you know, nobody cares because it's based in Ether. Um, so I think the die thing is hard to understate. And then um, other big changes in V2, uh, we're going to add by default uh, Gnosis safe support. So the idea is you'll be able to do transactions on Augur without ever needing Ether. And um, also adding support for a bunch of easier to use login options, things like Fortmatic, Portis, uh, Taurus, these things where if you're a user with maybe you know $10,000 or less at risk, you want those users to be able to be onboarded and start using it, even if it's not you know as secure as your Trezor at home or whatever. And then if the user deposits 50 grand, maybe you then have a notification that says, hey, you should probably consider using you know a device like a Trezor. But the idea is that you know with V2, if we do it properly, you should be able to use it uh, without really needing to know anything about Ethereum or how Ethereum works. That's kind of the the main objective. So what was your day-to-day involvement in Augur and uh, post-ICO? Take us through like 2015 to 2016. And then I think I know later on you got involved, uh, more involved with Pantera. What was that handoff like and what was uh, was your involvement prior to the handoff? Yeah. So I'd say the main difference is I just don't really write much code anymore or don't really write any code anymore unless it's like a weekend and I have an hour and I want to you know, do something for fun. Um, so that's the big difference. You know, in 2015 and 2016, I was writing a lot of software for Augur. At the time, we had written our smart contracts in a language called Serpent, um, which no longer exists because Zeppelin found a bunch of vulnerabilities in it. Yeah. When we had them audit it, uh, we thought we were going to launch in 2017. And then everything had to be rewritten because of these vulns that they found uh, in Serpent. So we wrote, we wrote everything into Solidity. And that's kind of the handoff point where uh, I basically hired more people hired somebody named Alex, uh, who's the the best smart contract dev on the planet, hands down the best. And uh, he's written pretty much all the Augur contracts since then uh, in Solidity. And then we built out a larger team to build things like the middleware layer that gets data from Ethereum and you know sends it to the UI. And then the sort of default uh, open source UI that's hosted on IPFS is the other thing that we've been kind of working on, on since then. How large is the core Augur uh, development team? I'd say it's about, you know, 12 to 15 people. And then completely distributed all around the world. Yep. Okay. And um, how's that experience been of building and, and running a distributed organization? How do you envision these organizations um, survive like in the next 10 years or so? Yes, yeah, so I think with a distributed team, there's some things that, that, you know, make it better than a co-located one, which is, you know, you can work whatever hours you want. You don't have to go into the office. There's no commute time. You know, you'd be surprised how much more you can get done by saving, you know, 30 minutes to an hour at the beginning and the end of a day uh, in commute time. But there's some downsides, which is um, you sometimes don't find out about problems as soon as you should because you're not working in the same place with the person on a daily basis. So that's something that, you know, in the past, I would say until relatively recently, we didn't do a great job of. Now it's something that I think we've kind of made all the mistakes. And so we now know what to avoid and, and how to address that. Uh, you know, the punchline is it basically requires pretty frequent one-on-one check-ins with people. 
you know, making sure everybody is, is really on top of things, kind of all the obvious stuff that you would do with the team in person, uh, but you still need to do it all, all virtually. And, and sometimes people forget that. How has the Augur ecosystem evolved, you know, in front of your eyes over the uh, last few years? And how's that kind of met expectations or, or, you know, beyond expectations? Yeah. So I say the Augur ecosystem, you know, it exists of a few like various tools that assist people. So things like Explore Augur, which is a way to kind of get, it's kind of like Etherscan for Augur almost. You can get more dialed in data on trades, on markets. They have a little leaderboard where you can see, you know, who's won the most money, what their ROI is. Um, you can track, you know, who owns a bunch of shares of a market. It's kind of some cool stuff that doesn't really make sense to put in the the main UI, but um, it's very cool data to see. You know, you can envision going to a market, checking it on Augur Explorer and seeing, wow, somebody owns a thousand shares of no on Trump. Uh, maybe they really know something or maybe they don't, you know, who knows? Um, so that's one. Another one is called reporters.chat. It's a comment site where you sign a message with your ETH address and you can see, you know, how much reps somebody owns. And you're commenting on a market to determine kind of how to resolve it. So that's a pretty good tool people have used. And then you have, you know, more formal companies, I would say. The main one that's kind of around at the moment is a company called Guesser. It used to be Guesser.io. Now it's Guesser.com. And it's a betting UI on top of Augur. So it looks like it looks pretty similar to a traditional betting site. You put in, you know, the dollar amount you want to bet. It tells you how many X you can win. So it might say, you know, 2.5 X. That's how much you'll win if you, if you win this bet. And then they let you make the bet uh, in a few clicks. And so the the Augur team itself delivered a local client for accessing Augur. And I think you just indicated that you're also building a IPFS based web front end for it. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's a there's an IPFS based front end that's live right now, even for for V1. Oh, okay. And then um, for V2, for V2, it'll run all in the browser. For the V1 piece, there's a component that has to run on a server. It's like there's been a, a generous community member who's just a few of them actually who've just hosted those servers for people. But for V2, it'll run entirely in the browser on IPFS. And so how do you think about, or how does the, the Augur team think about what should be built internally versus uh, you know, what you, you should encourage external developers to build? You know, really, I think anything is, is fair game for people to build. I think the, the question mark is really kind of what things might you have an advantage building as a centralized entity that can't exist as a free open source software project. Um, and maybe that's, those are the things I would build. And so things like they typically actually don't, don't tend to be things that are UI based. They tend to be things that you, that are more operational based. Services, service layer around the product kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So like if an Augur market's going to resolve in 36 hours, maybe you build a service that buys people shares at, out immediately, holds on to them for the time value of money for the 36 hours. And then you just keep repeating that. That would be one example uh, Gesser is doing a lot of market making on top of Augur markets. Um, I could see that being a pretty, you know, competitive uh, long-term advantage as a business on top of Augur. You could also eventually envision things like OTC desks for Augur markets. So you might have somebody who, you know, wants to bet hundred thousand dollars. They're not familiar with Augur. They don't want to bother going to the UI, even if it looks like a regular betting site. They just don't want to deal with it. And so you, as your OTC desk, you answer their phone call. You enter the bet into Augur. And you match them with somebody else, you know, on the other side. That could be an entire business. Somebody like Gesser or somebody else uh, could operate it. I could also imagine a portfolio manager running a solid business over, you know, prediction markets that are built by Augur, uh, kind of extracting value that way. Uh, but yeah, to your point, I think 
Augur does want to play in this pure layer two uh, space and then uh, leave the layer three, uh, you know, owning the customer relationship, marketing, providing different services to these various other companies that want to actually capture value that way. How have you seen these companies that want to build on top of Augur tackle like the huge regulatory problems that are brought on uh, by doing that in the United States? Yeah, so if you look at you know Gaster, Gaster in particular, they're actually based in Spain. You know, they're they're Spanish citizens working out of Spain. You know, there was another company called Vale, which was based in the United States. Um, they actually pivoted into I'm not sure where they pivoted into, but pivoted out of the space. I think if you're building a company on on top of Augur, you know, it's, it's simplest to have the operations based outside of the U.S. Uh, just because I think the regulatory environment here is going to move slow slowly enough that the time span to build a company and grow it is a is a, a span of years. You don't want to wait a decade for you know, the regulatory environment surrounding, say, U.S. sports betting to change. And so it makes sense to do it outside the U.S. And then maybe someday uh, when the environment's clear here, every state has you know clear regulations for how to do sports betting, et cetera, then you come back to the states and, and expand here or something like that. And so if you were talking to potential companies that were thinking about building on Orga, you know, assuming that they want to run a compliant business... Uh, you know, how how does utilizing Augur add value to them as opposed to running a, a fully centralized operation like Betfair? Yeah, the, ma- the main piece is there's just a lot less that you have to do from like a backend standpoint. So if you look at, you know, a company like Betfair, they have to write matching engine software. They have to write all this backend infrastructure. They have to deal with customer funds directly. That's a big one. Um, and if you're building on top of Augur, you can kind of, you know, relegate your role to being just another trader on the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means, you know, you can just use your own funds. You don't have to process customer money because Ethereum handles all of that. And then the other big piece is that it allows you, due to this, it allows you to focus on, you know, purely user acquisition, marketing, and growth. And so if you can kind of just focus on those things, I think it's um, should be a more cost-effective way to build a business. And there's also the element that it's it's global, kind of similar to Bitcoin. So if you look at Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin exchanges in different countries that are compliant in those specific countries. But I can still send Bitcoin from me to some person in China over the Bitcoin network. If they want to get it back out to dollars, then they go through an exchange in China. You might envision kind of a similar layer of for-profit entities on top of Augur. You know, a company like Gesser might take bets in, you know, outside the US, you know, that sort of thing. And then um, if you want to cash out, you know, you go to like a crypto exchange like Coinbase or something like that. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense for companies building on top of it. And from the perspective of a user, obviously there are are centralized alternatives. Once, you know, a few of the UX kinks um, die, resolution times and all that kind of stuff is sorted out and less of an issue, you know, what's the the big value add or differentiator for the user? Yes. I think from the user standpoint, it's really no limits and you're not going to be cut off Mm -hmm. uh, if you start winning. That's that's the big thing. And then if you look, look at kind of side benefits of that, you get, you should have in theory the best odds of anywhere because you're allowing the smartest bettors to bet. And then of course, lower fees because there's not all this backend infrastructure to operate. It's just run on Ethereum, you know, nodes basically. So it's should be lower cost. So the punchline is no limits and then, you know, great odds and, and low fees are kind of the, the trifecta of things. But I think no limits is what brings the users in. And then the other two are side benefits of that. And then if all of that works, you end up with probably more liquidity than anybody else. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of the, the end, end goal. Hmm. There's certainly a lot of use cases with prediction markets. Uh, I think Vale was somewhat focused on crypto native things, and also they got into presidential elections uh, later on into their uh, their term as a company. 
And then Guesser, I'm not sure exactly what their focus is, but there's also another one out there that I've been following called Flux Market that focuses on um, startups, betting on on startups. Within the various use cases out there, do you think there's a premier uh, use case that's well positioned to be a killer killer app and kind of drive crypto adoption forward? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest one to me is probably you know political events, and then uh, after that, sports. Those are ones where there's a clear pain point. You have these people who have limits and they're getting cut off because they're winning. And it's not in the bookies incentive model to allow you to win. And then if you look at kind of the liquidity aspect, even if you're betting on Betfair, which isn't going to cut you off, the liquidity is not pooled. So if you're betting on Betfair in Spain, it's actually not the same thing as betting on Betfair in the UK. Right. Okay. And so that's, that's another big difference. And so, just back to, to regulations quickly, um, I think that the strongest worded regulatory commentary out of the US, I'd say, is probably related to prediction markets that Commissioner Quintens, I believe was his name from the CFTC, basically opined about the potential liability of smart contract developers who publish code for you know prohibited products, which would include prediction markets within the United States. You know, this does seem like a bit of a impossible policy to enforce, given all of that can be done anonymously. In which case, they wouldn't have anybody to go after. But how have you sort of digested that commentary at Orga? And you know, what is a, a potential other approach that U.S. regulators could adopt, provided prediction markets remain prohibited? Yes, I think if you look at the commissioner's comments, you know, he he eventually ended up, I think, talking with the Coin Center folks, and they put out a joint. Uh, sort of blog post, and then he put out a revised statement where he sort of walked that that back a bit and made himself a bit more clear. And I think you know if you look at the sort of optimal way to approach it, I think um, you know it comes from a place of sort of I think you know respecting the fact that writing open source software should be uh, free speech under the First Amendment. It's mm-hmm. historically been protected as that, and I think it makes sense for it to continue to be you know protected as that. As in, so then if you look at it a bit deeper. You look at, okay, well, what sort of entities should uh, the government regulate surrounding this ecosystem? And I think the best analogy is sort of how agencies like the CFTC and the SEC have regulated exchanges, which is they didn't you know regulate Bitcoin. They didn't try to go after Satoshi. That, of course, would be impractical because he's anonymous. But even if he wasn't, I don't think Satoshi should be gone after. Instead, it makes sense to have you know KYC, AML, et cetera, on the layer, you know one step up the stack on, on the exchange layer. So I think the same thing is true for for systems like Augur. You know, if you're building the UI that basically processes trades or escrows customer money or does something like that, I think that's that's one scenario. If you're you know operating this sort of OTC business I mentioned earlier, that would be you know an activity that would probably be regulated as well. And so I think those things are things where you can approach it from a more traditional lens. I do think it is important though to look at you know what's different here uh, compared to a traditional exchange. So. If you look at like the Commodities Exchange Act, there's a ton of different you know things exchanges are required to do. Some of those aren't actually possible if it's smart contract based. Things like reversing the trades would be very impractical. Um, so I think the question from a regular regulator standpoint is how do you accomplish the same objective, uh, you know, consistent with the spirit of the law or the spirit of the regulation, even if uh, we need to evolve uh, how it actually works in practice. I think that's that's probably the place I would try to yeah. approach it from. And you mentioned perhaps building in regulatory compliance functionality one step up the stack, but you are also building some compliance tools into Augur itself, right? Like the the KYC token, which would enable 
basically, you know, users to only trade against other KYC users, right? Yeah. So there's this idea in theory that if you look at, you know, like the institutional standpoint of using something like Augur, you're not going to be able to trade with somebody who you don't know who they are. And so an institution using Augur is going to want to have like KYC assurance that the counterparty's been KYC'd. And so you can envision, you know, only trading on order books that have people who have some sort of KYC token associated with them. Um, so one example, a very basic one might be, okay, if a user has been authenticated by wire and they have a wire KYC token associated with them, maybe some people will be fine trading with that. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people will want one from maybe Coinbase does this someday and you know, so on and so forth. Are there other forms of sort of pre-trade compliance you've considered building into the protocol? I think that's that's the one that's actually you know feasible to do. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of the one that's, that's easiest to do. Most other things, if you look at you know regulatory or compliance regimes, they typically surround things like fair trading, uh, making sure that no you know individual user is screwed over or disadvantaged, that sort of thing. And and so that's that's less checking a box. It's more about kind of the overall system design. And so that includes things like you know trying to find ways to prevent front running, that sort of thing. So implementing KYC on uh, the Augur system, I, I mean, or at least having KYC pools for people that care about that to to use that feature on Augur, that's something obviously Wire would be very supportive of. But broadly speaking, I, I think your your user base uh, perhaps may not uh, appreciate that, and you've made certain decisions within the Augur protocol to keep it as decentralized as possible. You said you're also going to be building uh, the front end and uh, on on IPFS. So what's what sort of Augur's regulatory position? There are team members in in the US, right? So how do you how do you think about that and what kind of trade-offs have you made uh within either the layer two protocol or the layer three uh front end that you have so that you have a sound regulatory position here in the US? Yeah, so for us, you know, our perspective is that we're not um we're not basically trading on the markets. We're taking a position of we're not going to create any markets, which I think is a big one. Actual creation of the markets is something I think is probably a, a regulated activity. And then, um, you know, basically not actually using uh, Augur ourselves to do things like market making or trading, that sort of thing. Our position is that we merely uh, publish software. And then the last kind of important piece is we don't actually host that software. So if you look at the IPFS UI, it's, it's hosted on IPFS. And we don't run any of the gateways or anything like that. Um, so those are kind of the main the main ones. Is making sure we're not in a position of operating the software or hosting it. Uh, we don't want to be processing any trades, even with like uh, you know Augur V2 is going to have zero X style trading. So even with that, we waited a very long time. We never wanted to launch a zero X style relayer where we're basically matching orders. Instead, we waited until that could be done in a in a peer to peer fashion. Um, so zero X mesh is this thing that's going to come out where it's a uh, peer-to-peer network where you can broadcast zero X orders instead of broadcasting them say to us. And so the, that's kind of the summary of it is we try to basically just be open source software developers and really not do much, you know, beyond that activity. Always a tough question to answer. So thank you for doing that. So many teams are also attempting to tackle the Oracle problem currently. However, Augur has somewhat of a, an Oracle solution, right? There's a reporting and dispute system that's uh, incentivized by a token. Um, how do you think about your solution versus solutions that are proposed by, let's say, the UMA team? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, if you look at the UMA paper, it's essentially, it's very similar to what we had published as Augur in, in maybe 2016, early 2017, that sort of thing. And so um, I think the the core problem with the Oracle problem, there's there's two aspects. There's one that's like the theoretical problem of 
how do you get real world data into the chain in a secure fashion that's incentive compatible on any time scale? And so that, that's what Augur has solved. The second piece is now how do you do it quickly? And um, you know, for Augur V1, markets are taking six weeks to resolve. For V2, we can get that down to I think an average of 36 hours. Um, but then the next question is now how do you go from 36 hours to one hour or 30 minutes or whatever? And that's a much harder problem because a bunch of different attacks start to pop up. You know, the first attack is what if somebody's not paying attention to that event that the Oracle's gonna resolve an event about? Then the wrong thing could happen and nobody could dispute it. The second one is what if somebody starts uh, doing like block stuffing attacks where they make it so you can't get a transaction through uh, on Ethereum at that point in time and they just clog the network up for the span of 30 minutes or an hour or whatever your dispute window is. And so I think um, going from down from, you know, 36 hours to, to one hour or whatever is the hard piece that nobody really has a solution to. I don't have one either. And uh, we've always kind of been upfront about that. And I think there's better ways to solve that problem. Like uh, 36 hours of, of time value of money in the case of a prediction market is very, very little. It's a few basis points. And so that's something where it's an easy solution to just automatically buy somebody's position out, let them get their liquidity immediately and hold it for that period of time. That's something a third-party service can do. So if you look at UMA in particular, I think it's kind of, it's very similar to the old Augur ideas from late 2016, early 2017. It doesn't have things like a solution to the P plus epsilon problem, which is this attack where you basically bribe somebody and you bribe them such that they stand to either make a lot of money or at the very least make a small amount of profit. They can't lose money in the attack the way you structure it. And the only you know way to combat that is with forking, uh, which I didn't notice in the paper that they published. There wasn't really a proposal for how to fork the network in the event of a dispute. It's not something that's hard to add, but I think the punchline is you basically, if you add all these fixes, you end up basically just arriving at, you know, Augur circa 2018 or 2019 or, or 2020 with V2. And so, uh, can you define the, the problem of, of parasitic use of oracles, the issues that it arises, how you think about that in the context of uh, Augur and whether that's a problem that can be entirely solved? Yeah, so parasitic use is this uh, concept that Imagine you had an oracle where we're sitting around the table and we're each betting, you know, $100 in a soccer match. So there's $300 in total. Now imagine a group of three billionaires at another table across the street are betting a billion dollars each. So we have our little pot of $300 and they have their pot of $3 billion. And we are using like the Augur Oracle as an example. So we pay the Augur Oracle. Maybe we pay a dollar in fees or something. And from our perspective, things seem secure. We compensated the oracle. The math works out. It's incentive compatible. But the three billionaires over there across the street, they decide uh, to resolve their market according to the Augur Oracle result as well. And they haven't paid it anything. And so the Oracle has an incentive to basically be dishonest or lie because it can steal a billion dollars. And so that's the parasite problem in a, in a nutshell. The problem with it is nobody really has a solution to it because there's no way to really prevent somebody uh, from getting the Oracle data. Um, Uma has published a few, you know, ideas for how you could solve it. I don't think any of them actually solve the problem. Uh, using zero knowledge proofs, you can get around any of those counteraction mechanisms. And so it's basically, I think, I think it's an impossible to solve problem. I haven't created an impossibility proof for it, but, you know, I think if I had a month, I probably could. And so the question is, though, is it a practical problem? And I think in practice, it's very unlikely that there would be, you know, a massive side pod of $3 billion on some event and you weren't aware of it. And so one aspect is you can sort of become aware of these things. And then the other aspect is there are like some ways that the Oracle could lie and then still pay out the people who actually paid it. 
So with the billionaire's problem, you can envision, this is a very contrived, simple example, with the billionaire's problem that you can envision that the oracles could say, okay, we're going to resolve it wrong. We're going to steal a billion dollars. And then you guys who bet $300, we're going to pay you out out of the billion that we stole. Hmm. And so there's, there's ways to kind of combat these. There's probably like some like edge case where there's no way to combat it, where it's like too small. It's like you have a pot of $300 and another pot of $300. But I think it's one of those things where you know, it's a theoretical problem, whether it is a problem in practice or not, it kind of remains to be seen. Very interesting. I'd love to pivot the conversation to your investment career. So I think around 2016 or so, you should walk me through the timeline, you know better than me. Uh, you started getting uh, into angel investing. Um, you had an angel list syndicate, and eventually that led to Pantera taking interest in what you're doing in the space. Of course, I knew about you through Augur as well. And I believe, uh, uh, you know, they courted you to become co-chief investment officer. They're looking to bring on a technical partner. Uh, walk us through that, uh, you know, that journey. Uh, why did you start angel investing? What what kind of struck your interest? Uh, you know, I always kind of pictured you as a technical person uh, first. And, uh, and how did you discover investing and what got you interested in it? Sure. I guess I'd say the way I got into investing is kind of, you know, the same way I got into betting. If you go really back, I'll keep it short because it's really far back. But back in middle school, you know, I started betting on horse races and uh, built these models in Excel where you could kind of predict which horse had a positive expected value bet. And, and I bet maybe 20 races a day. And so that's how I went from, you know, $20 to my first few thousand dollars. And so with that, I got into the stock market, ended up being 2008. So lost a bunch of money. That's kind of my first investing lessons uh, was, was 08. And um, then got into Bitcoin, of course, and then didn't really do a whole lot investing again until I came out to Silicon Valley. And in, in 2016 was meeting kind of all these entrepreneurs, uh, both in and outside of crypto. And mostly because people wanted to talk to me about crypto. It wasn't like they were, you know, sending me deal flow because it because they wanted me to invest in their company. They wanted to talk to me about crypto because they were interested in it and thought it was cool. And then um, but I realized though that I actually had all this good deal flow because I had all these companies who wanted to talk to me and they were pretty high quality founders. And so, but I had no money. And uh, that's a problem if you want to angel invest. And so what ended up happening is the first company that I I angel invested in is a company called Numeri. And um I basically went to their office for a few weeks and helped the founder solve, solve a few technical problems uh, that they faced. And he ended up basically letting uh, me and a friend invest in, in their round. And so we had a few thousand dollars that we put into it. And then um, we got a group of people called a syndicate to basically back us and invest through that deal. And so I'm really grateful to Richard. He's the founder because he basically sent me all these people who are smaller check sizes, 50, 50K and under, who he didn't want to deal with who we basically wrapped in an SPV on AngelList and then invested in the deal. So we raised like a few hundred grand for that deal. That's how I got my first 20 backers. And then we started doing more deals after that. Uh, I did like a machine learning company called Datmo and then ended up investing in 0x, uh, which is when the syndicate grew really fast because uh, we returned capital to investors at I think a 150 to 200x multiple for the 0x deal. Jeez. And uh, that was a deal where they got liquidity in about a year. So I think it was it was a pretty crazy deal. And then after that, the syndicate grew really quickly. So we went from 20 backers to, you know, 200. And then now we have 850. And if you fast forward to, you know, late 2016, early 2017, you talk about Pantera, Paul from Pantera reached out to me and said, if I wanted to grab coffee with him, he asked me if I want to grab coffee. I basically responded like six weeks later, because I was super busy with something with Augur. And we ended up having lunch, talking about just investing in general. 
And then maybe a month or two after that, he reached out again and asked if I wanted to uh, grab lunch with him and Dan. Uh, Dan Moorhead's the founder of Pantera. He started the firm. And uh, so we talked about investing. And I think either that meeting or one meeting later, they asked if I'd be interested in joining Pantera basically as a, as a technical partner uh, to help them you know, invest in the space because Dan has a great finance background and Paul has a great BD marketing network background. Um, they're looking for somebody with a technical kind of operational background. And we had thought that Augur was going to go live in July of 2017. So I was like, okay, this is the perfect timing. That didn't happen for, for various reasons about, you know, rewriting everything. Um, but I ended up joining Pantera in June of 2017. And at Pantera, is there any particular uh, vehicle that you're focused on? Any particular fund that you spend more time than others? I, I'd say I spend, I spend, you know, a good amount of time across our three main funds, uh, which are a venture fund, a liquid hedge fund that kind of invests in liquid cryptocurrencies. And then we have a third fund I'm not doing too many deals out of recently, but it invests in kind of new cryptocurrencies when they're first created. Interesting. So I think, um, you know, Pantera is probably best known for its big passive Bitcoin fund and the venture funds. But, you know, you've also, as you were just uh, indicating, launched uh, a couple of ICO funds and the digital asset fund, which I think is like a bit more actively traded, if I'm not mistaken. Um, these are all, all created in a period of massive flux for the crypto market. Lots of crazy stuff was happening. Uh, you know, there was a, a new capital market being created, new issuance, uh, you know, lots of new things happening for the first time. Uh, you know, with those altcoin funds, what were kind of the major lessons that were learned? Uh, you know, obviously the markets evolved a lot in sort of the, the, the last almost two years. Uh, yeah, what were the, the major lessons and, um, you know, how does that sort of shape your thinking around how to structure those products going forward? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, ma- major kind of things we've learned are, I think with the, with the digital asset fund, you know, we probably launched it uh, too late into the um, bull cycle. So we launched it in like mid-November of 2017. Mm. And so that was, you know, not a great time to launch a fund because it was kind of right at the the peak. With the ICO fund, I think we did a pretty good job for the most part. You know, we've outperform like the ICO indices. But things I would do differently are maybe, you know, when when the portfolio value started to increase, we still sized positions based on percentage of AUM that we had in the fund. And I think that makes sense and is a perfect strategy anytime you're not in a bubble. But when you're in a bubble, I think what actually makes sense is to continue to size positions based on on how much cash you have on hand. So not, you know, saying, okay, we have, you know, $100, let's put 5% of the fund into this position. Instead, say, how much cash do we have available? Mm. How much super liquid positions do we have that are, you know, real uh, marks to market with a lot of liquidity? Then let's put 5% of that bucket in to this new deal. And I think that, because the reason is, if you look at kind of whatever, any mistakes we made, they were typically surrounding, you buy a position that looks like, say, a few percent of AUM at the peak, and then all of a sudden, that's a very large position in the fund. When things are down, you know it's not liquid enough to yeah. trade. Okay, interesting, interesting. And is that um the the obviously those funds are still going as you said. You know the the market continues to evolve. I think we've learned a lot about token economics as well. What might work, what probably won't work. Um, how do you think about the the kind of the assets, especially in like the ERC twenty token space? What what are the particular areas that interest you for for those funds, and what have you kind of moved past and accepted that that's probably not a great idea. Yeah, I think, um, you know, areas of tokens, what what actually makes sense uh, for there to be a token 
the way I think about it is things where there's some sort of staking mechanism where the tokens, you know, kind of required uh, for the network to function is, is generally stuff that I like. Um, that's like a work token. Like a work token, you know, something like Augur or something like Maker where there's Maker is an interesting example because you're not really working too much as a Maker holder besides maybe voting and, and kind of governance, but it's a risk transfer mechanism. So the token exists because it can be diluted uh, in the event of a, sh- a certain shortfall. That's an interesting use case that I think makes sense. Um, you know, some cases, layer one blockchains, they require a new token, essentially. Things that don't really make sense at this point are, you know, like payment tokens where you just have a token because, you know, you're creating a, a decentralized casino and you want to have a token to be used in that casino. That would be something that doesn't make sense. Augur doesn't have this, but if it did, like say Augur had a separate token that you use to place bets, that would make, you know, zero sense. Um, so th- things like that are things where, you know, I think the market uh, has moved on from. And what do you think about governance tokens that don't accrue some kind of direct economic incentive? Like, do you think that governance can have value independent of a direct economic incentive? You, you know, only at very, very massive scale. And and even then, I don't, I don't think the value is, is that high. Mm-hmm. You know, like one way to think about it is like, what could you have governance over that's worth a lot of money? Why well, I'd say maybe two things that you can measure empirically in the real world are the US government. So if you could pay to control that, well, there's a thing called lobbying where you effectively can. <laughs> and uh, if you look at lobbying, there's a lot of money spent on lobbying, but it's actually not that much. It has one of the highest ROI per dollar invested investments in it of anything. You know, even like uh, massive corporations, you know, people say, oh, they spend massive amounts on lobbying. And then you look at the numbers and it's like a few million dollars. Like that, that's like what, you know, like- Depends how big the company is. Yeah. Pocket change, it's a rounding error, right? Yeah. It's like it's like 10 minutes of, of AWS billions or something, right? <laughs> um, and, and so, even if you look at a massive company like Amazon, the amount they spend on lobbying isn't that much for the results that they get. And so, um, I think if you look at governance tokens, that's like the one real world analog you can look at and it's probably not worth uh, a ton. So, outside of a well-designed token, are there any other ways that you're bullish on that can uh, capture value for layer one and layer two? Well, I mean, I think if you look at, when we look at investments, it's really just looking at the same three things, which is team, product, and market. And market, and that matters really more than anything else. So, you know, looking at a team, we're looking for people who can really kind of burst through a brick wall if they face some sort of problem. You know, somebody who like, if there were a brick wall and, and, uh, they firmly believe that if they ran ran into it, they would be able to go to the other side, they would do it. You know, from the product standpoint, uh, just looking for a good product that is usable and makes sense, uh, that sort of thing. Product's actually probably least important though. Um, team, I think, and market are the most important. So, there being some sort of lar- large market opportunity to go after. If you're looking at a layer one in particular, the main question from a market standpoint is how do you actually get developers to build on it? And my belief has been, because I am a developer in the space, I wouldn't want to build on anything that didn't support compiling Solidity down into it. And in fact, I probably wouldn't even want to want to build on anything that didn't support the Ethereum RPC layer. Because even if you even if you support those two things, it's still probably a couple of months of work for my team uh, to migrate over to your new chain. If you support neither of them, I don't want to throw away two years of work so I can migrate to your chain. That's an eternity uh, in the lifespan of a of a startup or an open source project or a company. And so. Um, those I think are kind of the required criteria. Some people have, you know, three out of four or whatever. I don't know if that's actually good enough. I think you might need all of them to to be able to kind of compete with Ethereum. When you think about market size, what kind of assumptions do you make, if any? Do you assume that crypto adoption will take place and this market's going to be huge in that sense, or are you thinking about it purely of the market currently? 
Yeah, I think about, uh, you know, assuming it's huge, right? Like I think the, the way to think about it is when you invest in a layer one chain, you're effectively assuming that you you can assume one of two things. You can either assume that like this chain is going to get some sort of people call monetary premium, quote unquote. I think it's really just a euphemism for speculative value. And then the other is, you know, some sort of transaction fee cash flow at some point, right? So like if you look at Ethereum, um, I think far more interesting to me than the monetary premium aspect is that Ethereum should have cash flows uh, at some point if it gets big enough and there's, you know, if half the world's financial transactions take place on Ethereum, well, that's a no-brainer buy for Ethereum at pretty much, you know, any any sort of price. Um, like if you look at like ICE, it's a big company that runs stock exchanges around the world. Mm. I think it's worth more than Ethereum is today. And so that's kind of like a, an easy comparison that you can kind of draw. So when you look at the market, you're really looking for, can this get insanely massive versus what is it, you know, today? And what you're talking about there is is transaction fee accrual to stakers, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you obviously talked about some developer-related issues there. What do you think are the other moats that are kind of growing around Ethereum now? Obviously, you've got a lot of chains coming out claiming high scalability and, and a few other points of differentiation. But, you know, it, it seems to me like there's obviously a lot of momentum behind Ethereum and you're seeing different apps that are now leveraged by new developers coming into the space. There seems to be some kind of snowball-y kind of network effect there. But what do you see as like the major moats? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like this this kind of like connectivity or or interoperability almost. Like, you know, the fact that like Augur V2 is going to touch, you know, 0x, you Very know, cool. Uniswap, Maker, all these projects, they all interact. Well, if you have a new chain, I have to migrate all that stuff over. And so, it's not just the work to migrate my project over. It's multiplied by orders of magnitude because mm-hmm. now I have to figure out some way to get something like Maker working on your chain, something like Uniswap, something like 0x. And it just stacks and it becomes like an almost insurmountable problem to migrate all this stuff over. And it's not just code, right? It's liquidity as well. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's even worse. I can't just port you know the code over. Um, you actually have to migrate all these financial network effects, which is really hard. Yeah. From a developer standpoint, I thought your story about developing on Bitcoin, uh, you know, a project that took uh, six weeks or six months, I forget what you said, but it, it ended up taking you, that, that same project ended up taking you a day to write in Ethereum. Are there any layer ones that you see on the horizon that may have that kind of value proposition for, for developers? Maybe it's a drag and drop system or something like that, that makes coding easier, but anything that makes that uh, developer experience in order, in order of magnitude smoother? Yeah, I mean, one one thing that you know I've seen that you know we're investors in at Pantera is uh, near. They have this really nice kind of IDE that you can use that allows you to write you know smart contracts and write the UI layer kind of in the same in the same like IDE basically. Yeah, and it all just kind of seamlessly flows, and that's something on Ethereum where you know Augur could have been built three times faster, maybe four times faster, if we didn't have to deal with fetching data from Ethereum, putting it into this middle JavaScript layer. Then putting that into the UI and making sure all the interactions, you know, go smoothly back and forth, and so that that's like one area where I think somebody could get some sort of competitive edges is on that that angle. Yeah, I hear a lot of good things about Near. Is that completely JavaScript based? Um, I think yeah, it's mostly mostly JavaScript based. Some like TypeScript, which is basically JavaScript. Yep, got it. And so, what are the kind of elements of a layer one? You know, there's a lot of big well-funded layer one smart contract platforms that are sort of launching as we speak or in the near future. From a go-to-market standpoint, what do you think they should be doing? Yes, I think all of them, you know, should be trying to figure out some sort of way to bridge uh, DAI over to their chain. Because 
if I'm writing a DeFi app and, and I can't have DAI, it's in my view completely, this is a testament to Maker, it's completely useless. Like Augur with, with just ETH, completely useless. It's a great, we proved out V1, we got, you know, the Oracle problem working, we got all this stuff working, but it's just a toy. And it's, it's not even like one of those toys that's that fun to use because there's no DAI. And that's why. So you need DAI, I think is the biggest one. And then, you know, once you have DAI, um, you know, actually going to market, I think is a lot easier because if you have like a thing that's much more scalable and it has DAI support, you can tell developers of apps, uh, hey, you should migrate over to this thing. Now, that does require that their app not be super composable. So, like it needs to be something that can kind of run on its own. Like an, an example might be if you're building a peer-to-peer poker game, that would work just with DAI. Mm-hmm. And so, that might be one thing that you could launch on another chain. If you're, if you're trying to get like Compound to move over, that's not going to happen. Zero chance. Louis talks about this all the time about how Maker, uh, you know, and Dai was a giant catalyst for anything happening on Ethereum. So uh, ostensibly, uh, any new chain that's gonna that's got to be the first piece of in- infrastructure that has to be built. I do have a question about uh, going back to sort of tokens and things uh, things of that sort. What do you think these layer two projects, these open source protocols that have raised money? you know, by selling equity, but not uh, tokens, what what do you think they have to do to capture value? Are they almost forced to build some sort of layer three application or service around their business? What would be an example? Compound. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think um, it's a great question. You know, I think some of them will try to monetize by directly just charging a fee on the smart contract layer. And I think there's kind of a balance there. If it's, if it's low enough, people just won't care and they won't fork it out. They won't bother. There's also some element of if the network effect is high enough, the liquidity outweighs the fee. And so there's no incentive to fork it out. And there's some threshold where it's high enough that you piss people off and they're just like, screw you. Like we're going to make this without the fee and we're going to launch a version of it. that's that's, you know, fee-less and it's going to be free. And somebody tries to bootstrap that. Um, so I think that's the risk you face of charging a fee on the protocol layer. I think a smarter way to do it is by, you know, building these things on top, like UIs, like, you know, Instadap is, is an example of this. Instadap could charge a fee on their UI and it's perfectly consensual, like a user can use it or not. Um, but it's not like this protocol layer infrastructure where um, it would be super annoying if it charged a fee. Um, so the difference is like Instadap's charging a fee because they're providing a service, service, it's convenient, that sort of thing. If I were Compound, you know, maybe like the, you know, evil Silicon Valley mastermind idea would be to charge a fee in the protocol layer. I think the smarter thing to do would be to charge it on the UI layer and just build so much of a network effect around the UI and, and so much of this nice, simple branding that somebody doesn't mind paying 15 basis points or whatever uh, to use their UI. But if you charge it on the protocol layer, I think you have the risk of, of making people very angry and, and uh, you know, it's risky, right? Like, like it's like, um, you know, you could blow yourself up if you, if mm-hmm. you do that. And is there like, do you encourage new projects that you see to kind of go after this kind of vertical integration early? I mean, obviously, they have to build underlying technology first. Uh, and they've probably got limited resources. How would you advise them in terms of managing their priorities? Yeah, I think I think it's important to build, um, you know, whatever UI on top at the same time as you're building the protocol. Otherwise, you just, you know, you'll be building something that's mis- mismatched for the market because um, you're not actually using the thing that you're building. So I think it's important to do that. Um, you obviously don't need to be fully vertically integrated. Like an example would be like, you know, for Augur, we didn't build like a guesser style UI and it's great that guesser has. And, and so like they filled a, a spot in the market that was, that was necessary. Now, if we didn't build even the open source UI, um, 
we'd probably be in a lot of trouble because we wouldn't know what to actually build um, so that other people can even build on top of it. So I think that's kind of the criteria is you need at least something there, even if it's not like amazing, just so that you know what to build to solve, you know, somebody's problem. Yeah. You sort of, you touched on the, um, the importance of interoperability with all these new chains launching and perhaps the need to, to bridge assets to, to the newer chains. Um, how, do, how do you think about the different interoperability solutions that are out there today and from a, both a technical standpoint and whether they can, the token economics can capture value? Yeah, I think um, you know, if you look at interoperability right now, you basically have Cosmos and Polkadot and then uh, the field kind of thins out quite a bit. Those are the, really the main projects people talk about in the space. You know, I think, um, I think Cosmos is doing a, a decent job there's a lot that needs to be built out there though before it's like practical and, and actually usable. Like if I wanted to port Augur onto Cosmos in a secure way, uh, it's probably a ways off before that's possible. The other lens is is Polkadot, which I think has a lot of good ideas. The one thing I don't like about it is how there isn't really sort of like a gas fee schedule. It's kind of like um, you kind of have to petition to get your, your parachain on board or stake a lot of assets to get it on board. And, um, if I'm a developer and I don't want to be operating stuff, well, staking to get on the on the network, that's a non-starter. I can't do that because that would put me at legal risk. And so the only other option is for me to basically lobby like a politician. And um, that's that's not like how it, like like great software does not get selected by committee. Um, it gets selected by shipping stuff and seeing what the market wants. And so if to even have a chance, you have to basically lobby you know this group of people and 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 that sort of thing to get onboarded. I don't really like that that aspect of it. But I think it's a great project. Um, I think they're going to ship some good software. I think it's actually going to launch. People say, oh, it's never going to launch. I think it will launch. Um, I like it. I think it has a lot of practical ideas and and should be pretty scalable. So I'm excited to see it launch and and I hope they build uh, a bridge to die pretty quickly. So then we can see people people actually you know building on it. What are your thoughts on Keep and TBTC? Yeah. So on on uh, Keep, I think it's I think it's a cool idea. I think you know with with these like BTC bridges. It's really hard to get kind of true like trustlessness, you know, no matter how hard you try. Like, you know, the project recently announced, I think it might be TBTC, the one I'm referring to. I get mixed up with names all the time, so it might not be the right one. But one of these projects, you know, they have like a an Oracle as part of it. Yeah, and yeah, since like the Oracle doesn't really look secure, but I think that Oracle is actually fixable. The way they use an Oracle is, is a bit different than other projects. And I think, I think there's some ways you could fix that and and make it end up being secure. So I think stuff like that's cool. The downside is it requires a lot of collateral, if I remember right. And so that's that's one thing that I don't like about you know these these DeFi systems. They require so much collateral. Mm-hmm. I think you can kind of get away with it once, right? Like you can get away with it and say like, well, Maker Die is so valuable that it's worth having all this collateral. Um, and with with ten million dollars in Die, I can power you know a hundred million dollars in Augur trades because the turnover can happen multiple times. But with like bridging like Bitcoin over, if I have to put in you know one hundred fifty percent collateral or whatever it is then all of a sudden it's, it's just a lot less compelling um, because in finance, the more collateral you had, uh, the more expensive things get. And that's something that people in crypto haven't really thought enough about. It's also the reason why you see all these like layer two um, state channel based systems and nobody uses them. And you ask, well, why does nobody use them? And there's two answers. One is they're really hard to use. But I think even when that's fixed, still nobody's going to use them. And it's because of the collateral cost. If you mm-hmm. require, you know, two to five X collateral requirements to do anything, um, time your, value of money. Yeah, your time value of money is just going to kill you at the end of the day. Yeah, I think uh, Keep have a few thoughts in mind on how to reduce that, but it's definitely a problem that permeates the, the DeFi world. But it just 
touching on DeFi quickly, what do you think? You know, obviously there's a lot cool going on in that space. What do you think are the things that can happen incrementally from here to really move the needle on adoption of DeFi? Yeah, so I think for DeFi, um, it's it's always been what I've been most excited about the space. I hate when people say, "Oh, DeFi, it's um, it's like a narrative shift." It's like, no, like I've been talking about this since 2014. It's been <laughs> yeah. the narrative. It's the only thing that actually makes sense, I think, uh, besides digital gold. And so, for what can make DeFi happen faster, I think you need you do need massive scalability. This is one thing everybody, not everybody, most people get wrong. They say, "Well, look at the internet. We built sites, they crashed." Then we built better infrastructure, then they crashed, then we kept doing this. Like look at Twitter. And it's nothing like Twitter because in a financial market, you need market makers. You need people who can place, modify, and cancel orders rapidly to provide liquidity. And if you don't have that, the market never bootstraps. And so it's not like you can just go from a bunch of usage at 10 TPS, run into a wall, scale to 50 TPS, run into a wall, and keep doing this over and over again. You need like a thousand kind of day one to bootstrap a real financial marketplace. I think that's one piece. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece is better fiat on-ramps. So like if you look at things like Coinbase, it's great if you want to invest in cryptocurrency. It's not good if you want to actually use it because you can't get onboarded in 30 seconds and then go use something. And so, you know, solutions like Wire are an example of that where you're trying to solve the onboarding problem and get money from dollars into crypto in seconds, not days. And I think those two things, if you combine them, uh, make DeFi a compelling value proposition. DeFi is obviously uh, of core interest to Wire as well, and uh, Louis and I follow it pretty pretty closely. Uh, there was a whole slew of uh, different layer two uh, primitives that popped up, uh, you know, over the course of last year, and then you've seen most of them come to market now. Any primitives that you would like to uh, see built that don't exist in DeFi right now? I would think that. Uh, things of the model of Compound and Uniswap where you're directly interfacing with a smart contract seems to be what's making sense just the way Ethereum works, right? It, it makes uh, it makes a little bit more sense from a UX standpoint too. But uh, any other primitives alongside those and I guess Maker uh, that you you think uh, should exist in DeFi? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the last kind of remaining one is surrounding margin calls and liquidations, that sort of thing. And people say, oh, we have solutions to that. But it's like, not really, because you have a centralized Oracle that decides all of it. And so that's that's not a solution. That's like a stopgap. And so um, I think to make this really exciting, you, you need some sort of solution to that problem, the sort of fast Oracle problem where it's like good enough, but also not centralized. And so if you look at Augur, the reason Augur is, is fully collateralized, the reason you can't um, you know, make a market on Tesla where the price can go to a billion or whatever per share is because we don't want to have margin calls in the system that are secured by a trusted Oracle. And so there's some people kind of working on this problem. Um, I think like BZX or something like that uh, has done some work on it. It's a problem I think more people need to be focused on because uh, the biggest risk to DeFi, I think, is that well, there's two big risks. One is just that we don't ship good enough software so it never gets adoption. But then the other one is that we do and it does and then it blows up mm-hmm. uh, due to you know a vulnerability from, from, I think, from an Oracle fault. Do you see... Uh- highly liquid and higher frequency on-chain trading as a solution to that? Or like, what are the areas that can be innovated on with that kind of problem? Yes. Like one example is, uh, yeah, more, more liquid on-chain trading, um, which gets easier once you have more scalability. Uniswap V2 is going to have a price feed. Again, you know, I probably only trust that for relatively long time periods. If you're using the price over the last 10 minutes, that's easy to manipulate. Um, price over the last day, probably much harder. Um, and so I think there's people are getting closer to solving the problem. But for things where you need like the price at an instant, uh, that's a lot 
lot harder problem to solve. And so I'm not sure how you would actually, how you actually do that. Uh, I'm just pointing out the problem nobody else is talking about. I don't have the solution to it. How do you, uh, I think we're starting to see more uh, businesses that are built on top of DeFi. We saw uh, Linden App just launch uh, very recently. They're basically productizing uh, some of uh, Compound's interest rate features as a savings product and marketing it to mainstream audience. How do you think about you know, layer three building on top of DeFi, what do you think are the advantages of building on open source, uh, on open source platforms? And what do you think are the disadvantages? Yeah. So the disadvantages are obviously you just, you just can't move as fast as you can on centralized infrastructure. That's, that's always the challenge. I think, um, the advantages though, are that it's global. Uh, the liquidity pool is, is global. You should have kind of no limits on transactions. Fees should be lower. There's less intermediaries. And those things, are, I think, are the main kind of uh, value adds of building on this infra. Just one final question from me. Um, what do you think about sharding as a scaling solution, Ethereum's general proposed roadmap for scaling and the impact that those architecture changes will have on, on DeFi? Yeah, so I think, um, I think sharding is something that I think will work. Uh, a lot of people don't believe it will anymore. I still believe it'll work. I think it's going to take longer than people think. I think it's like from like a ease of use standpoint of just like taking a Solidity contract and running it on Ethereum that's charted and everything works, you know, like magical unicorn rainbows is probably, probably still like five years from now, in my opinion. And then what was the last part of the question? I think you've, you've, you've basically answered it. Yeah. I cool. mean, look, it's, I, I guess that the, the question is like uh, the, the impact on, on DeFi, you know, obviously we've got a lot of different contracts interacting with each other. There's the issue of cross shard communications, but I guess what you're saying is it's going to take a long time for, for those kinks to be ironed out yeah yeah basically that's what i think you know i think um it might mean that uh DeFi interacts a little bit less often so you know some DeFi apps like they they use multiple protocols almost as like a marketing uh gimmick in a sense like you don't really need to use that many other protocols and so um you know i think we might see a little bit less of that but i think you can still do a lot like you know an example uh if you're trading on zero x like that's probably perfectly fine to do in a sharded network um, placing an auger bet while you just need access to die. You could even like deposit it into the auger shard um, where you could then place bets and then withdraw it back out if you want to use like say compound. So when I was doing my research for the show, I, I did read through your uh, crypto thesis that you put out. Um, it's slightly dated now. I think it's about 10 months old. Uh, so that's a lifetime in crypto. But one of the things that you stated was you liked investing in toys that are going after the long tail of markets, right? And you, and you again state that crypto will start will start as the long tail of finance. That's where a true adoption will be driven. I, I, I really love to unpack that. And I, I think by long tail of the market, you're thinking about, you know, how Amazon, for instance, uh, went after uh, the niche uh, online uh, book retail market and uh, saturated that market uh, well. And, you know, there are all sorts of operational efficiencies and uh, makes customer acquisition a lot easier by using the internet as the back end. And that was their, sort of their foray into the retail market. Eventually, they, of course, expanded from that. And now they dominate most of the uh, retail market on, uh, and, and has primarily shifted online. Um, so how uh, interoperate that thesis sort of into uh, the crypto universe? What specifically in the long tail of finance do you think is well positioned for for crypto to drive adoption? Yeah, you know it's a it's a tough question because it's always it's always hard to know what you know exactly that is. But I think in general, you know, it's it's the things that are kind of 
they're kind of like the misfits of other markets, right? So like it's the person who if you focus on the user, I think it's more like long tail of the user almost. So it's like the user who, you know, wants to bet on X, but can't because of where they're based, or they want to speculate on Y uh, and they want to do it in a large amount, but they can't. Um, or they're really good at doing, you know, A, B, and C and in their country, like, you know, if you do A, B, and C, uh, your limits keep getting cut lower and lower. Um, these are like things that are kind of across multiple types of classes of financial markets. Um, it could be things like, you know, if you want to buy insurance in a certain location and your policy size is so small that it's not worth uh, a large insurance company actually insuring you. That could be like developing country use cases. It could be somebody who's in China and wants to get exposure to Apple stock, but doesn't have money offshore sitting in the US like the super wealthy Chinese do. And so what is their option? Well, they can go through like their local OTC dealer, buy some Bitcoin, convert it into DAI, and then, you know, speculate on that uh, on Ethereum. So these are kind of like things where um, they're sort of like misfits, they're long tail. They're typically associated with the user. The user like is doing some activity or wants to do some activity already, but they just can't for whatever reason. Those are the things that I think are going to take off first. And then it'll kind of expand from there. And those are areas where there's not really any competition, but there is customer demand. And so I think that's a great spot to be in in any market where it's kind of it's blue ocean, but you know there's customer demand at the same time. That's a great, great position. And then once you have that, you can kind of expand back towards the fatter end of the tail uh, from there. Yeah, great. Um, I just have final uh, one final question uh, from my end. You obviously sit in a very awesome seat where you get to see a lot of great founders and entrepreneurs and different kind of projects knock on your door. Uh, what are you most excited about uh, for the remainder of the year and hopefully that something that we'll see in 2020? Yeah, I think um, I'm most excited about scalability stuff launching. So seeing Polkadot launch, uh, seeing Blocksroute launch, seeing Starkware launch, Matic Network. I'm actually not an investor in that one, but I think it's cool. Arbitrum is another one that's focused on kind of a plasma-like architecture for scaling. Um, so seeing all these things come out, you know, I think we're going to go from you know 10 TPS to you know 500 to a thousand mm-hmm. um, overnight. If just one of these things launches, and they're all supposed to launch in the next six months, everybody knows how software gets delayed. But I'm quite confident that at least one of these things will launch uh, over the next you know six to nine months. And so that's that's very exciting because you know I've been in this space since since 2011 been working on smart contracts since 2014. And now finally in 2020, we're going to see some scalability tech come out. And that's uh, that's really exciting. One follow-up question. Any idea what kind of uh, torque that will add to scalability? Is it going to be a linear thing or an exponential thing? I think it's going to be ex- exponential. You know, it's it's like if you look at modems, you know, we didn't go from uh, 56K to, to, you know, 100 and something. Uh, we kind of did like for a very brief period of time. But, you know, the, the transition from 56K to, you know, multiple megabits per second happen very rapidly. And the same thing I think is going to be true here. It's not going to be a, a linear growth. It's going to be an exponential growth that happens. Um, one thing that's different, I think, I think it'll be like step functions. So it'll be like, you know, how we went from like 2G to 3G to 4G, and then now 5G on the cellular cellular networks. Um, they're like these, you have a huge step up and then you'd be kind of stag- stagnant basically for a while. And then another huge step up and this kind of cycle continues. So I've got a uh, the clickbait question. What do you think will be the best performing crypto asset over the next three years? I mean, hopefully, rep. Um, you know, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think the things I own the most of would be that um, Maker, Zero uh, X, and ETH. You know, those are the those are the main things that I own. I own a bit of Bitcoin as well, but I think um, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. But it can it can only 10x so many more times <laughs> before it hits. You know, 
gold levels. Yeah. (laughs) Until it becomes a stable coin. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Thanks for joining, Joey. Uh, Where can people uh, get in touch with you or read about the work that you're putting out? Yeah. Twitter's good. Uh, Just at Joey Krug on Twitter. Um, You can also email me if you want, joeykrug at gmail.com. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or the Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.